thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. We're continuing our, uh, our series on the greatest of times. We believe that God has placed something in each of our hearts for such a time as this. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 17 says that each of us were born and made to live in the place that you live and in the time that you live. And so we're going to continue with the series on the greatest of times. Last week, Pastor George talked about we are living in the greatest of times personally, and he talked about how you can live a life of victory and to overcome. He took the story of David and Goliath, powerful message. If you missed it, go to faith.church, click on media, click on last week's message. But today, I'm going to talk to you about the greatest of times for the church. Can you say the church? Come on, say it like you like it. Say the church. Woo, see, it's a good thing. Turn your Bibles, Acts chapter 4. Right in front of you, there's a, a Bible. You can pull it out. I'm going to be reading from the NIV today. You can also get your phones out. Just follow along. I want you guys to see kind of the story and what God is telling through, um, through Luke in the book of Acts. And it's going to be a great time. But before we, we step into this, I was really challenged actually about three weeks ago. I was at a conference and, uh, and I heard a message that just rocked my word. It was like a bomb went poof, off of my heart. And I just had to, I wrestled with these things. It challenged me in areas that I didn't know I need challenging. And I heard a message from a pastor, he's from Georgia, his name is Andy Stanley. And some of you may know him, may not know him, but the things that he said and the approach that he took on, on some things really challenged me and inspired me to um, write this message today. And I want to share with you some of the, the principles that I, that I really took away from what he presented out of Acts chapter 4, because I believe it's a word for each of us. There are messages that, that we have as communicators that come out that are for us, for us as a church, and, and that's wonderful, and God wants it that way. But there are sometimes there are messages that come from an individual that's for the church, the global church. And I believe that this is one of those messages that speaks to us on a global level, but particularly it first starts with us. And so I want to step into this today and believe that God wants to change us and transform us. And I want to begin with prayer today. Father, this is your word. This is your truth. In the word that we're going to read in just a moment, contains the words of life, contains the words of truth. And so everything that we do, everything that we say must be filtered through this. Every thought about you, how you interact with us, should be found in the Word. And so today, God, as we look at this, may that be the filter of what is said, and may that be the filter of the principles that we take away. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. There once was a time, actually, where there were no Republicans. There once was a time where there were no Democrats. There once was a time when there was no Constitution. There once was a time when there was no First Amendment right, Second Amendment right. There once was a time when there was actually no religious freedoms <clears throat> the way that we know of them today. Actually, once upon that time, there was just one entity, 
and it was Rome. Rome began as a republic, and because the leadership of a man called Caesar or Augustus, which came Caesar Augustus, it became an empire. And during Caesar Augustus' rule, there was something else that was happening. There was a baby that was born in Judea in a town called Bethlehem. And this baby was remarkable. It was remarkable because the name of this baby and the renown of this baby and the fame of this baby eventually became greater than the name and the renown of Caesar Augustus, the founder of the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, the name of this baby, which was Jesus, became greater than every Roman emperor ever to rule. Matter of fact, the name of this, the name and the renown and the fame of this baby became greater than the Roman Empire itself. And we know, and we've already said, that was Jesus. And Jesus would grow up, and he began to stand up against the injustices of the Roman Empire, the trickery of the Roman Empire, the dishonesty, the deceit. But he just didn't deal with the, the political world. He would stand against the hypocrisy of the ruling religious power at the time, which was Judaism. And he stood up against the hypocrisy of Judaism and the rulers of it. And Jesus went throughout the streets and he gathered crowds from the left and the right and they all came from every city to see what Jesus was doing. And Jesus chose 12 men to be his best friends. He poured into them. He had meals with them. He got to know them. They got to know him. And he began to teach these crazy, ridiculous things. Now wait till you hear them like, love your neighbor, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, forgive those who have wronged you. And then he just didn't teach good stuff. He healed the sick. He restored dignity to the lost, to the broken, to the outcast, to the down and out, to the prostitute. And this Jesus who did all these amazing things and loved the unlovable and, and healed the broken, Jesus himself actually was betrayed by his friends. He was actually betrayed by one of the 12 that was with him. And the, the religious system that he opposed and he challenged some of their, their wrong beliefs, it was, it was the religious system God had set up, but people, man took advantage of it. They used men as, and women as their commodities to serve them. And he opposed them. He eventually actually was condemned by the temple, which was the place where you went and worshipped at the time. He was then crucified by the empire that he imposed that he opposed. And then, what's very interesting, today, the same Jesus actually is worshipped throughout the whole world. Now, shortly after these things, after he was betrayed, after he was condemned, after he was crucified, these groups of people started gathering. This is the cool part of this thing. They would gather early in the morning on the first day of the week, and they would, they would read the Bible together. They'd challenge each other. They would pray together. 
They would receive letters from, from some of Jesus' followers who were off telling other people about the great news of Jesus Christ. And were having struggles and having great stories to tell. And they would receive their letters back and they would gather around and they would read those letters together. And they would rejoice in what God was doing and they would pray for the needs of these people. And when they gathered together, they would, they would make commitments to be people of purity. They would make commitments to, to, to say, you know, we're not going to live like we used to live. We're going to make commitments to be honest, to love, and to serve, to work hard. And the men and women who were, really, their whole point is they wanted to become men and women who were worthy to be called a Christian. And to live for Jesus and not themselves. And in those gatherings that happened shortly after Jesus had gone through all of this, they gathered. They gathered in big rooms. They gathered in small rooms. They gathered in, in living rooms. They gathered under, under trees. They gathered on the beach, and they would do these things. They would pray. They would read the Bible. They would worship together. And they became a community. And those that were gathering were men and women together, which was, which was revolutionary at the time. They were slaves and masters would gather and worship the same Jesus, which was revolutionary at the time. There were farmers. There were children. There were doctors. There were lawyers. There were people of wealth, people of simple means. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were Greeks and Romans. And there were soldiers. And they gathered, and they began to do these things. And those people who gathered, they, they believed that Jesus was the only way and that God sent his son to purchase mankind back to himself, that all who believed in him could be saved. And they had crazy beliefs and crazy thoughts. They actually believed that there was no need anymore for animal sacrifice because before, in order to be forgiven of your sin, you had to take an animal, you had to take a lamb to the temple and it would have to be sacrificed and it would cover your sin. But now Jesus came and he was the ultimate lamb who was sacrificed and now his blood, no other blood could ever measure up to his because he was the son of God. So therefore, no other animal needed to be sacrificed and this blood just didn't cover your sins and actually remove them completely. So they knew this. And Jesus reconciled from every race, every ethnicity, every whatever your, your bloodline was. He just leveled the playing field and he said, all are welcome. But the things that these people believed actually put them at odds with everyone else around them. And these same people who were following Jesus also were betrayed by their friends. They were also condemned by the temple. And they were persecuted by the Roman Empire. This is what was happening. But to this day and today and from this point on, moving forward, their influence though spread like an airborne disease around the world. 
People shout off like rockets to different countries, different nations. They begin to tell people about Jesus. And it was like once it landed in the heart of someone else, it went to the heart of someone else. And the church grew and it grew and it grew. Listen, Christianity started in Jerusalem. And it went around the world. And you and I are here today because of these people, those 12 men or 11 men, and they added another disciple, and then that, that message landed in the heart of other disciples, and they begin to preach around the world because their influence spread around the world. You and I are here today. We are the church because these people endured betrayal by friends, condemnation by the temple. They were persecuted and killed and murdered by the empire, but yet their influence still spread. But here's, here's the reality. Now is our time. And the message of Jesus made its way from them to us. So someday, one day, Christianity, our Christianity, will be a once upon a time story. And here's the question, here's the challenge that I had to wrestle with some of this. I wonder what kind of story will be told. Because we look back on this story and this story, we say, man, this is an amazing story. Man, look how those Christians lived. Look how they, look how they, they endured what they endured. Look how they kept their priorities straight. Something very important for us to understand. And if you don't understand this piece, you're not going to understand this whole thing and the message of what Jesus is trying to tell us in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. Here's the reality. You and I, we do not go to church. We do not go to church. You're like, well, I went to church this morning. What are you talking about? Here's something you have to understand. We are the church. Okay? So church is not a place we go. Church is a place that we are. It is who we are. It's our identity because we are rooted in Jesus Christ. So what I mean by this is that we are the carriers of the faith for our next generation. We are the carriers of our faith for the next generation, just like the the, the beginning church was the carrier of the faith for us. And I wonder what story will be told about this generation of Christianity. Listen, I, had, I was wrestling with this. What are they going to learn from my priorities? What are they going to learn from how I live my life and how I pressed into God or how I, I use God for my own advantages? What story is going to be written about me, my life, my family, how you lived your life? how we lived our life. A greater question, what story is going to be written about American Christianity? Or even a a deeper question, one that's a little closer to comfort, what story is going to be written about Faith Bible Chapel's Christianity? And I want us to look at a narrative in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. It's incredible. It's powerful. It's challenging. But when we read this, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see there once was a version of Christianity that was totally inspiring. It was completely compelling. There once was a version of Christianity that made people stop and say, I want 
what they have. Or it made them stop and say, they have something that I don't. But really the kicker on that side is just because someone has something that you don't, the next question is, do you want what they have and you don't? And even though these people worship differently, they use different language because they, it, all of a sudden they were talking about this Jesus peace and this redemption for mankind. Some things were even offensive because what they believed was contrary to the culture at the time. And people were offended by it. People were drawn to it, though, instead of being pushed away from it. And people paid attention to what, what was going on. They sat up straight and thought, what is going on? And so we're going to read chapter 4. But before we get to chapter 4, I want to set this up a little bit. In chapter 3... Something remarkable was happening. Peter and John, remember, chapter 4 was written two months, chapter 3 and 4 were written two months after the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's, o- it's only been two months. Jesus has died on the cross. He's rose from the dead. But I want you to, to understand that two months ago from this account, which we're about to read, two months ago, they saw Jesus get crucified. And they witnessed it. So two months after the crucifixion, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. Now they still worshiped at the temple, but they understood this Jewish Messiah was Jesus Christ, but they still went and worshiped at the temple. They still went and read scripture. They still went and worshiped as God had laid out they are to do. So they're on their way to the temple, and they walk up the stairs, and they come, they come to this guy who's sitting at this gate that's called Beautiful. So they named a gate beautiful. It must have been really nice looking because they named it beautiful. So he was sitting there, and every day the Bible says that this man, this cripples man, the man who was crippled, his friends would carry him to this gate. And so he would come to the gate every day, and he would sit, and he would ask for money for people going to the temple. And so every day of his life, so in other words, this has been years, year, and day, and day, and day after day, which equaled months and years. So they walk up, and, and Peter and John are just chatting, hanging out. They're on the, they probably had a Starbucks on the way to church, and they were just enjoying themselves. And this guy there says, hey, can I have some, some money? And Peter turns to him, and he, he says something that he says, listen, I'm a pastor. I don't have any money. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in the ministry. I'm broke, man. No, he didn't say that. But he did say, I don't have any money. He said, listen, you want silver and gold, but silver and gold I don't have. But what I'm going to give to you is going to transform your life. And so, Peter reaches down. He grabs this man's hand. It says, Scripture says, taking him by the hand, helped him up, and instantly strength came back in his legs and his ankles. So this man stands up after years. He's probably 30, 40 years old. He stands up. He's strong now. I mean, what would you do? I'll just decide. What would you do if you, you've been crippled for 30, 40 years and one day you can walk? Man, I'd be like, check this out. I would. I'd be running and jumping and like, this is awesome. And so the man is like super excited. And he's like, I, I can walk. And he's like, where are you guys going? They said, well, we're going to the temple. He said, well, I'm going with you. 
So he walks up to the temple. He gets to the temple. Remember, this guy, he walks in. Everyone that went to the temple, possibly not everyone, but many of them could have passed through this beautiful, through the gate beautiful. And they saw this guy. They're like, it, isn't, that, isn't that John? Isn't that whatever his name is? What, I, I, Simon? Isn't that, his name is Simon. Isn't that Simon that was sitting by the gate beautiful? Yeah, that's him. He's walking. I'm sure some of them thought, he, has he been ripping us off for 30 years? But they knew this guy was crippled. And so there's this, there this commotion that's happening, and, and people are like, it's the guy that was down by the, by the gate. He's walking. And so there's this commotion. People are gathering. The guy's like, he's doing this thing. Check this out. And then Peter thinks, you know what I'm going to do? There's this crowd. He thought, I'm going to start preaching Jesus. So these men gathered around 5,000 of them, and he begins to preach. He begins to tell them about Jesus. The leaders of the temple come in. They break it up. You know, hey, what's going on here? And they see Peter and John, and they're like, man, these Jesus people, gosh. And they arrest Peter and John. You have to understand what just happened here. The same people that arrested Jesus, the same people that crucified Jesus, the same people that whipped Jesus, the same people that was responsible for his beatings and his ultimate death were the same ones that just arrested Peter and John. So they take him to the jail. Possibly he could have been in this, they could have been in the same jail that Jesus was held in. So they're arrested. And the next day, they bring them out in front of the same high priest as Jesus dealt with. Caiaphas, Annas. And a funny side note, it was, it was a whole family. Caiaphas' um, brother, or sorry, son-in-law was Annas. It was like they had a monopoly on the high priest kind of position. So they would always feel out of the Lord to elect their relative. But anyway, that's just another story. It was controlled by this family. And so they, they were brought out in front of these same people again. And they have to be thinking, you know, what they do. Listen, why can't you leave this Jesus thing alone, Peter and John? You saw what happened to your master Jesus. But they were a little intimidated this time. Because there were rumors of that same Jesus they crucified had been walking around Israel. And why won't, why won't you learn your lesson? Why don't you just mind your own business? Why don't you just be a good citizen and shut your mouth about this whole Jesus thing? Go be a nutcase somewhere else. And then they, they come to the reality. And what's interesting, <laughs> as this crippled man is hanging around who's not crippled anymore, and they see him, they go, why are you healing people? And actually... Then they ask the, the setup question to the next, to Acts chapter 4. And I don't know why they asked this. They, they were dumb to ask it, but this is what they did. They said this, by what power or what name do you do this? It's like this was what, Peter was waiting for this one. He says, well, I'm, now that you asked, let me tell you. This man is healed by the name of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, whom you crucified whom you killed, but God raised him from the dead. 
In other words, it's the Jesus you thought was powerless. It's the Jesus you thought was a lunatic. It's the Jesus you thought was outdated. It's the Jesus you thought didn't fit the culture that you tried to kill. He's the one that healed this man. And they said, oh. And then Peter steps into the moment. Again, remember, he's facing the same people that crucified Jesus, same people that abused Jesus, same people that whipped Jesus, same people that killed Jesus. And he looks them straight in the eye and in chapter 4, verse 12, and he says this, listen you're, listen, you're trying to find salvation, but I'm telling you this, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is actually the reason why a lot of people reject Christianity. This is actually the reason why some Christians leave Christianity. Well, God can't be that narrow because God loves everybody. He does love everyone. Some people reject Christianity because they think all roads lead to God. But the problem with that thinking is that Jesus says one road leads to God, and it's through me. He said the world's gate is really wide and open, and you can take it, but you're going to be, dest you're going to be destroyed. But the gate that I open is really narrow. Because it's me. There are Christians today that come to church, they get saved, and then there's influences of the world. And so the enemy deceives them to think that, that God can't be a God who would only make one way to him. Because what about that country? What about that culture? And I understand the heart of that is a great love for people. But the reality is this. Theology isn't defined by how I feel and what I don't understand. It's defined by what Scripture says, and that is salvation is from no one else. For there is no other name. And this isn't something Christians made up. This is something that Jesus said himself. And Peter looks him straight in the eyes, and he says, you killed him. God raised him. And there's no other name except Jesus by which man can be saved. So here's the question to us. What would provoke such bold statements in that situation? We might say, man, Peter, just keep your mouth shut, Peter. Just say, okay, yep, all right, we made a disturbance in the temple. Sorry, yeah, okay, all right, yep, yep, all right, just can you let us go? Okay, well, let's get out of here. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't take the hint. Remember, Peter and John were close to Jesus. They knew what was going on here. They had seen everything that had happened to him. They'd seen him arrested, seen him whipped, seen him crucified, seen him dead, seen him buried. But here's the other deal. What they saw is that three days after he was buried, Jesus was sitting on the Sea of Galilee cooking them breakfast. That kind of changes things a little bit. So when a man who was dead three days is cooking you breakfast, it kind of changes the way you see things. You say things that everyone else goes, oh gosh, why'd you just say that? I don't know if you should have said that. When Jesus said and told the disciples, I've come to be the Savior of the world, and salvation is found in no other name, what you believe him when he's there frying you a fish after three days he's been in the, in, in the hole. You think, whatever you say, I believe you. They didn't say, 
they, they, they didn't come into the situation, Peter and John, just to raise a commotion. They didn't come just to kind of blow things up and mess with people. They weren't, they weren't saying these things about Jesus just to cause a problem. They said it so that the hearers of their words might be saved as well. That was their motivation. These two men, Peter and John, two months ago when Jesus was arrested, Peter was running from his life. John was trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Matter of fact, Peter was warming his, his hands by a fire, and a little girl comes up to him and says, and remember, this is two months prior to this situation. He comes up to him and says, Peter, aren't, hey, aren't you one of those guys that runs with Jesus? And he cursed her. He used profanity at her, and he says, I don't know Jesus. Then he goes over here, and this is also fulfillment of prophecy, which Jesus had told to him, that you, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, never, Jesus. And then he denied to the little girl. Goes over here. Someone asks the same question. He says, he cursed at them. I don't know Jesus. Goes somewhere else. He says, I don't know Jesus. So what has happened? Now they're standing before these temple rulers. They, on a snap of their finger, they enough of this. Listen, we're going we're gonna to kill you just like we killed your master. And Peter says, you do with me what you need to do. But I'm telling you this. Salvation is found in no one else. In no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is found in Jesus. Something changed. Something happened. His faith was rooted in something outside of circumstances. Do you see that? His faith was rooted in something outside of his circumstances. I want you just to understand that for a moment. Luke continues, actually, in Acts 4.13. says, when they saw, meaning that the temple leaders and those who arrested him, saw the courage. They knew this, man, this Peter and John, these, po man, they got, they got some grit. Because they knew, they know what we can do to them. So therefore, their response to them knowing what we can do to them, and they still respond this way, they saw their courage, the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled. In other words, they're not like us. They're ordinary men, and for us, it's like they're just like us. And they were astonished that they took note. Now, here's the kicker. I love this one. That they had been with Jesus. There was something about their courage that reminded them of this person, Jesus. It was remarkable. In verse 14, it says, but since they could see <laughs> that the man who had been healed, I love this, Standing there with them. You can't really argue with that. The, that guy, he's still over, like they're having this serious conversation. He's still over here. Check this out. He's still happy. What are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, we know he's healed. Everyone else sees. I mean, this was like a public figure that everyone sees. He's now walking around. So for PR's sake, they said this, we're going to let you go, but here's the deal. You're going to keep your mouth shut about Jesus Christ. You cannot speak anymore in the name of Jesus. You shut your mouth. You just be a good citizen. And they let him go. But they said, 
we know where you live. I mean, this was a serious threat. I mean, this wasn't some, some hot air. They knew they meant business. So what, what do you think they did next? Here's the question, what would you do? You do a little Jason Bourne, you go get one of your passports and get the heck out of the country. Would you call your friends, hey, listen, man, I'm down at the 7-Eleven on the corner, such and such and such, bring me my stuff. I got, I got to bug out. I'm, I got to leave. They're going to kill me. No. Why? Because when you have breakfast with someone who was raised from the dead and told you the things that he told you, this is what happens. You lose all fear. Something in you stands up a little straighter. You say, wait a minute, I'm dealing with something here that's much greater than me. You lose fear, you lose concern for this life. Because Jesus has shown me a life that's better than this life. So then they went back to the Christians who were praying. They were actually waiting. These, these, remember these groups of, of men and women, slaves, free, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, who were meeting and worshiping together? Guess who they were praying for? Peter and John. So they went back to, this, to the group of Christians, and they, they said, hey, and they gave a report. Guys, this is what's going on. This is what they told us. And they told us if we don't shut our mouths, they're going to kill us. And so the Christians are freaked out. The Christians are like, what in the world's going on? Peter and John are like, you know, well, listen, we just need to pray. That's what we need to do. So in Acts 4, verse 22, we have actually the first recorded prayer of Christians together, of church. That's what we did this morning. And they began to pray. And before we read this prayer, here's the question I want to ask you today. And this is a question that kind of rocked my world, is this. You know the circumstances. You know the trouble. You know what's happening. You know they're being chased down. You know they're being watched. There's people who are following them. Why? Because they want to make sure they don't preach in the name of Jesus, which they were told not to preach in. People were hunting, and there were people outside their house. And they came together to pray. What would you pray? What would you pray? What will be the first thing in your mind that you would be praying? How would you pray? Here's the other thing. What would an American pray? Acts 4.24. When they heard this, in other words, they heard the report, they raised their voices together in prayer. Just as something for us to understand as the church and what God has for us in the greatest of times right now, I'm going to tell you something, and I believe it with every fiber in my body. This word right here is the key of living in the greatest of times. This isn't an afterthought. This is the core. This is the foundation of how God's going to do something great with Faith Bible Chapel and with your life is this right here, prayer. So when the world's falling apart, what do we do? Freak out? No, we come together and we pray. Now, actually, we don't wait till the world falls apart. We pray. So when it does fall apart, fall apart, we are confident that God's still in control. So they gathered and they prayed. 
So hang on to your hat. Uh, just, so we, I asked the question, what would you pray? But hang on your hat. We're going to see what actually they prayed. So Acts 4.24, they go on to this. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's interesting <laughs> that it say, oh, God, get us out of here. Sovereign Lord. All of a sudden, you saw them come under, under right submission and alignment with God's sovereign Lord. Hang on a minute. You made everything. You made the sky. You made the stars. You made this earth. You created it all. Hmm. Okay. They reminded their, their own flesh, wait a minute, we serve a God who is greater than anything we could ever think of. In other words, they were saying, God, it doesn't look like you're in charge, but I know you're in charge. It looks like things are falling apart, but I know you've got this. Verse 25, you spoke, and they're still praying to God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now, they're they're quoting a psalm, which was a messianic psalm that was um, in the Old Testament, many of the writings of Psalms and the writings of the prophets spoke of a Messiah that was to come. They've been waiting for this Messiah, Jesus. They said, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And then they go on to verse 26. The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, knowing this is Jesus and all those who follow Jesus. So what's interesting, they're quoting this messianic psalm because the Jews believed that the prophets would refer to a coming day when the Messiah was here. But what was very cool is that these, these people, these, this church, these churches realized that what they were living in is what David was talking about here. The time has come. They were walking in this moment right then. And then they continue to pray, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. In other words, our master Jesus. And then it goes on, they did what your spout, oh sorry, they did what your power and will, this is the key, they did, who? Herod and Pontius Pilate did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Anyone catch that? Do you see that? In other words, God, you are in control. In other words, God, this did not surprise you. In other words, God, you knew all this was going to happen. Therefore, we're not worried. We're not afraid. Now, once they laid the foundation of their their worlds unraveling, their leaders of the church are being persecuted, Things are struggling. They're gathering now. They're they're afraid. Persecution is beginning to come more and more and more. Their 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 world in which they thought used to be is seems to be shrinking. They move then to their request. And this is what they prayed. Lord protect us. Help my retirement grow. 
help my waistline shrink. Help me find close parking spots to the mall. Help my kids succeed in sports. Help them get a scholarship. Lord, help my church turn the lights down during worship service. Wait, Lord, help my church turn the lights up during worship service. It's funny, but it's embarrassing, isn't it? We pray little prayers. And maybe, maybe, that's why so little happens. I want us to learn from what they prayed. And to move our eyes from this to that. Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. You know what's going on, God. Things are rough. Things, they, man, th things are going nuts. Consider their threats. They've threatened us. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So consider their threats. Lord, get us out of here. Lord, send, just rapture us now. Lord Jesus, come take your church because I don't know if we can survive in this climate anymore. Lord, the world's so evil. That's my old Pentecostal voice. I don't know if you, but anyway. Lord, how do we survive? I'm so scared. What about my children? Lord, consider their threats. And God, this is, while you know what's going on, this is what I'd like for you to help us do. Enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. You see, there once was a version of Christianity that inspired heroic prayers. There once was a version of Christianity that inspired people to pray outside the boundaries of their families, of their friends, and of their preferences, and of their church lighting. There once was a version of Christianity that knew something was going on and knew they were a part of something that was bigger than themselves. And you know what? They prayed like it because they knew it. And this is what they prayed. And then, 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 you, then you step into another understanding. Lord, stretch out your hand. Remember, we're following this beautiful prayer of this church. Stretch out your hand. For whom? Wait, who do you think they're going to ask God to stretch their hand out for? For me, God. Nothing wrong with praying for yourself. But they understood. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, build the church. Now, this isn't just the apostles. This is the church. You might, well, yeah, of course Peter and John are praying this because they walked with Jesus. These were converts. These are people who weren't Christian and now are followers of Jesus. This is what they're praying. 
And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit empower them to do? To speak the Word of God boldly. And when these Christians spoke the Word boldly, they spoke it in such a way that actually didn't drive people away. Listen, I, I've grown up and I've had the, the opportunity, I was going to say privilege, but I'm going to say opportunity of seeing all kinds of people preach God's Word boldly. And people think the meaner you are must mean you're bold. More of a jerk you are must mean that, man, I'll tell you what, that person's anointed. Preaching the word boldly isn't standing out on street corners with signs that says God hates the homosexual. Preaching the words boldly is not, is not going around telling people they're going to hell. Hell is a part of the gospel, but the root of the gospel is what Jesus did first. And they preached the word boldly that drew people to themselves, that drew people to the church. And actually, the Scripture says that daily people were being added by the thousands to the church. Their boldness was singular-focused on what could bring transformation to the lives of people. And so, why? Why were they so bold? What was it? Where they get all of this power and this strength? What was their confidence rooted in? And verse 33 says, with, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the faithfulness that the right presidential candidate was elected. No, their confidence was in one thing. It was in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power, they testified that Jesus is alive. You see, we, we don't, we're not Christians because of we have a great, you know, system going on here. We have these great things that Jesus tells me to love people. Listen, all of that is irrelevant as Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. We have a historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It was their confidence. And we have all these, these stories, all these written books, all of these testimonies that are firsthand. It's the real deal. This isn't some children's book we've made up. Jesus is alive. And their whole faith and their power was rooted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we need to care about a presidential candidate? Absolutely. We need to pray. We need to ask God that his plan will be revealed, that his will will be done. And, and listen, I'm not opposed to anything, but we need to understand that's not our issue. This is the issue, that our confidence is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their confidence was not linked to a new open door of influence, nor was it shaken by an empire that opposed them, a religion that wanted them dead, a world that seemed to be in chaos. They weren't shaken by all of this, laws being passed that they opposed, and that their confidence wasn't shaken that Target put transgender bathrooms in their store. confidence was in Jesus Christ alone. 
Their confidence was rooted that Jesus once was dead and he is alive. And because of his resurrection, they were fearless. They were bold. They were courageous. They didn't gather in their churches and their Bible studies and say, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? He didn't sit around and hold hands and just say, ain't it awful? They opened the word and they said, isn't he good? Regardless of the circumstances, he is sovereign and he is good. And we will prevail. That's what they did. And because they were fearless, because they were selfless, they no longer feared loss. And that selflessness and that compassion and that kindness and that boldness caused a pagan, selfish, demonic, idol-worshiping culture to come closer and hear and experience the transformation of Jesus Christ. Do you know why this is the greatest times for the church? Why we can be confident in our faith and be confident in what we say and how we live our lives? The reason we can live with confidence regardless of what is going on around us is this. And it's the same thing that they rooted their faith to. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I want you to understand the, the significance of it. Is that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's it. That's what we anchor our lives to. God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the reality. Do you know why we fear not and press forward and hold, on, hold our heads high and reject fear as believers in the church and reject the idea we have to shrink back and we got to protect ourselves, lock ourselves in a door and close it? Oh, the world. So, you, listen. We need to understand that we do not need to fear evil. And the reality is this, is that evil fears us. The whole, the whole purpose, John says, First John says this, Jesus, the, the whole work of Jesus for, was for him to come and destroy the works of the devil. Our confidence comes from something Jesus said. After Peter made this statement, Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, you got that right, Peter. And I'll tell you, what you just said in Matthew 16, 18, he says this, I will build my church. Everyone say church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Something to understand, gates in Scripture always represent a point of decision. And always in the, in the gates that, that happened back in the, in the Old Testament, in the old cities, the elders and the wise and the, 
decision makers would come to the gate and they would make decisions on how they're going to rule that city. So when he says, I will build my church and the decisions of, of hell, the schemes of hell, the strategies of hell, the decisions of hell, what happens in society that reflects hell shall not prevail against the church. That deserves an amen. It won't prevail. No matter what's going on, those of us who are the church are living in the greatest of times to see God do amazing things through us. I don't know what the future holds. But what I do know is because he lives, I can face tomorrow no matter what happens. Because he lives, the old song goes, all fear is gone. Because he lives. Because he lives. Because our Savior is alive. Because I know who holds my future. And life is worth the living. Why? Just because he lives. So what will this generation of Christianity be known for? What will Faith Bible Chapel be known for? When someone tells a story of this generation of American Christianity, what are they going to write about? What will be our once upon a time story? We are the carriers of the faith for the next generation. We set the tone. We set the pace. We set for the next generation. We're the ones that are carrying the torch. And I believe we're living in a fantastic, incredible, powerful time. I believe we're living in the greatest of times for our church. I believe we're going to see God move in our nation, but particularly in our church, in such a way that we're going to say, Holy Jesus, you can get the glory. And so when the world's freaking out, we are standing strong because our confidence is not rooted in the world. Our confidence is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we're on this journey, doesn't mean you're not going to fear. It just means you're not going to let fear control you. It doesn't mean you're not going to have questions. It just means that you're going to get the answers to your questions in Scripture. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're going to, you know, you just ignore evil in the world. No, you address it. You stand up for it. But listen, you don't let that affect you. You don't let that push you back in a corner. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. That looks like something, and it looks like someone who is constantly moving forward no matter what's going on around them. And so as we're walking this journey, as you and I are facing the greatest times for the church, you young people, listen to me. You're, what we hand you over the next 20, 30 years, I'm praying it's the best, the most powerful, purest form of Christianity that has ever been on the planet since the book of Acts. I really believe it. And pastors and leaders and volunteers and children's workers and ushers and servants and carpenters and lawyers and, and doctors who are serving God and wherever God calls them to do, we are like lights that shine brightly in the midst of darkness. And everyone says, what are we going to do? And they're like, I don't know, ask that guy. He's not freaking out. Why are you so calm? I'll tell you why. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. I'll tell you why. 
And that's the reality of where we're at. It's the greatest of times. So while we're walking this journey, something for you to understand. I want you to hear this, and I'll close with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who is that? Those are the ones who passed on Christianity to us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin, like what? Fear, worry, selfishness, focused on me. Let us throw all that off. That's because it so easily entangles us, especially when times get tough. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, perseverance. Never give up, never quit, never back down. Ne never say, maybe we should just change things. Maybe, you know, what are we gonna do? Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. This right here, marked out for us, is this. The time that you are alive, that is the race that's marked out for you. The moment you made a decision to be a follower of Jesus to the moment you step from this life into the next, that is the race that's marked out for you. It's appointed every man a time to die. It's also appointed every man a time to be born. That is your marked out race. You got one life to live. Let us run this marked out race with perseverance. Fixing our eyes on who? Come on, say it like you like the name. That's better. <laughs> that's good. The pioneer, in other words, he started your work. He started, he called you. He knows what you, he knows everything about you. He started your journey. He was the pioneer. And guess what? He's going to be the perfecter or the finisher of this faith. And why did he do that? Because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He knew all that it was. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, verse 3 says this, consider him. In other words, remember Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners. We're living in a day and age where opposition is real. It comes from the, from, the, from the decisions of hell to try to intimidate, to influence, to create a culture that, that is dark and evil. And you're going you're gonna to receive opposition as a follower of Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured opposition from sinners. Why? Why do I need to consider Jesus? So that, in other words, he endured it. He overcame it, and so can you. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, there's no greater time to be a part of a church and this church than right now. Listen, do not become weary and lose heart. 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 Because Jesus rose from the dead. We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 
or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center, located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.